Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome listeners, subscribers, Brendan here with Mark, episode 232, Friday, March the 11th, 2022, and we're back, we're back for your weekly entertainment and a little bit of education, hopefully, Mark. Mark, how are you? I'm great, Brendan, really, really, a little bit cold, I was telling you before the temperature, where I am at the moment, it's 11 degrees, but um, bright and chirpy. Excellent. And I think, well, we've got, oh, gee, we've got a chock a block full of information podcast this week, Mark. So we're going to rip through it, to, through it very shortly and get in, stuck into the, um, well, they're all important bits. But first, thank you to all our listeners. And we have a new patron, Mark, that I want to do a particular shout out to who's a, a, um, a men of mine um and that is christina um who has joined as a kangaroo sponsor mark on our patron site so go to vetgurus.com and jump over to how to help us or go to patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n and search for vet gurus and there's lots of different um, levels you can help us and Christina's joined up as a kangaroo, which is $5 a month. So that's fantastic. And every little bit helps. And that's more than a little bit. We greatly appreciate it, Christina. And hi, Christina. How are you going? She's starting up in her, she's a new graduate that of, um, she worked part time at my clinic um, for a fair while as a veterinary nurse. And she's starting up as her first um, job in veterinary science fairly soon, Mark. So good luck to Christina. And she's, I think she scored the perfect um, sort of position. She's decided to take a job near the beach so she can, on her spare days, go go surfing, paddle boarding, lying on the beach. Um, yeah, that's the sort of life I wish I had when I first graduated, Mark. <laughs> it's a lot, sort of life we all aspire to, Brendan. Yes, and perhaps even when we, when we um, retire, Mark. And speaking about sort of retiring, um, you just wanted to quickly talk about where you are at the moment in case we have a bit of a dropout. Um, and I know that in the last week you've gone You've gone dark, <laughs> we did go dark off the internet and for the week that we are recording here, um, I did notice that the internet cables, the two most important cables to Tasmania um, off Australia here, part of Australia, the island down south near Melbourne here, um, which is where Mark is at the moment, uh, were cut. Um, so there was no internet for a day or two there and it just happened to time with when you were heading over to Tasmania, Mark. So is there any connection there? I, I have to um, be very clear in my, you know, I, there was no, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't muck around with the spirit of Tasmania's propellers, the, the big uh, ferry that um, ships us over here with our vehicle to Tassie. So, um, no, had nothing to do with it. But it was interesting, Brendan, that... Um, that uh, because we flew down to Melaleuca where the orange-bellied parrots are and we were sitting in the the small um, aircraft company, Paravion's office, um, at about 2 o'clock and everything went 
dark. None of the internet worked. Um, and, um, and crackies, you should have seen the quizzical looks on the people's faces when they had to pull out pen and paper and check manifests manually. Yes. It was a, it was a strange thing to see, particularly young faces who just, well, they didn't know how this would all they're, work. They're jacked into the internet all the time, as most of us are, Mark. So, um, actually, we might leave it for our next episode, Mark. You know, a little chat about what you did down there. But yeah. um, glad, glad to hear that. that you're back and you had a wonderful time as we spoke off air before we started. But I think we need to spend a little bit of time about that particular venture of yours um, because I wanted to talk about a uh, our vet guru shop mark uh, on etsy etsy.com vet gurus and you'll find it and i've got a review it's a bit of a self-serving review here it's a vet guru's apron mark <laughs> and for those um i did listen- when we visited on our way down to tassie i saw you modeling it in the kitchen Yes, that's right. And I, I, I was going to introduce that topic that um, we managed to catch up um, a, a week or so ago and you were kind enough to drop by on your travels and spend a, a day and a half or so with us and um, including a, day, a night camping out in our driveway. <laughs> <laughs> and for our listeners, no, I, 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 Mike wasn't... Um, too dirty that I wouldn't let him in our our house. Um, he'd brought his um, fancy camper van, um, truck, whatever you want to call it, your vehicle, um, and um, we had a great time, didn't we, Mark? And we did um, have a great time. It was good to catch up face to face, first time for a while, and. Um, <laughs> Kate and Annie had a good chat and uh, we went for a couple of really um, nice little outings and a couple of walks and, um, yeah, all was good. And, it yes, you did get to see the Vet Guru's apron and that's why I wanted to do a quick review of it. It's it's sturdy, it's classical and it's stylish, Mark, and it does its job. So I highly recommend it. <laughs> um, and I and I can I can take a bit of a lead there, Brendan, because I wasn't wearing it, and um, and I've have got to say it, it fitted sveltly over your um uh, muscular torso, over my pot, yes, <laughs> and um and it it was a substantial bit of kit. It wasn't just some throwaway plasticky, um, you know. It was it, I was very impressed with the quality. So I'm I'm <laughs> proud that we can put our vet guru's name to these products. Yes, and it will be used for years to come, Mark, and it will last for years. So, yes, um, it's another way of supporting us, going to Vet Gurus on the Etsy website and just buy a little bit of our merchandise, you know, one or two items, and just think you're not only getting a great-looking item and useful item, but you're also supporting us and help pay for the podcast, so that would be fantastic. So with that, Mark, let's jump into this episode and... My news story is a bit of a depressing one, so I'm not going to spend as long as I could on this one. It's about well, it's about elephants and a story that you and I, no doubt, will um, think, well, it's pretty obvious this happens, but it's um, an important topic that's brought up every now and again in print, um, and that's, well, the headline is nothing to do, nowhere to go. It sounds like 
my life, Mark. What happens when elephants live alone and the mental health problems of elephants that are isolated alone and they do a comparison with elephants and and humans that are kept in solitary confinement in, in jails, for instance, for many years and how they all go basically tropo and the same thing happens with elephants and um, it's, it's, yeah, and a little bit of the research, although it does, interestingly enough, it does mention that there isn't a large amount of actual decent research papers there um, uh, on the internet or elsewhere about um, this particular topic. But, um, gee, it's a sad story, isn't it, Mark? The stereotypical behaviours that these elephants do when they're kept on their own. Um, But there is a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel um, and it does mention some of these rescue organisations where they do manage to provide a, a more environmentally enriching environment um, for these elephants that are in captivity, Mark, um, and that that may not necessarily be able to um, integrate it in with other elephants, but at least providing it with, with things to do and, and um, trying to exercise its mind. I think it is a, a um, you know, we talk about it regularly week in, week out, environmental enrichment for our charges the patients we get to look at and um and and of course uh um, there are um those circumstances where people have acquired animals um and you know the article talks about um uh, some of the literally uh, roadside zoos traveling zoos um that have a small group of animals like like a fair and travel to and from different towns and and those animals do end up showing those those elephants involved in those places do end up showing stereotypies and um and yet um, i remember trips to recent trips to western Plains zoo where um you know the social interactions of the the animals housed together the elephants housed together and the logs and the things that are placed in there in large enclosure to interact with um it it changes changes them completely yes. um, and reduces those stereotypies um so so yeah it's a sad story but fortunately you you said not much um research not much uh, published literature i just hope there's no published literature about it i hope they don't even have to doing there's no animals to look at that would be the best outcome and i think that's what the laws are changing in most countries aren't they where the um the the elephants that were kept as well originally in circuses have been banned and then the ones that are kept in captivity they're not they're not encouraging replacement of those um so yes so that's my story, Mark. What do you have? Mine's a little bit more light-hearted, Brendan. And one one of the movies I do enjoy, and I haven't watched it for quite a while, but I um I always get a giggle out of it when I do. Is Groundhog Day, um and um and my article talks about um statistical analysis. Statistical analysis. I, I love the line in this article where they say um, that uh, the research was born. Uh, the research project was born on cam- in campus bars over in conversations over many beers, uh, but it did end up being um, uh, published in the Journal of Weather, Climate, and Society, um, and uh, assessed the through statistical analyses the accuracy of groundhog predicting predictive ability. So groundhog groundhogs are exhumed from their uh, burrows. 
um, across North America, America, United States and Canada. Um, and uh, on February 2nd, uh, halfway point between the winter solstice and the spring equinox, a groundhog, bleary-eyed as having been removed from his burrow, is hoisted into the daylight in towns across uh, the, the North America and if the human handler proclaims that the rodent sees its shadow, then six more weeks of winter await. If it doesn't, spring will come early. Um, and so um, there's there's a bunch of, um, well, websites and, and obviously the movie and, uh, um, and a whole uh, subculture, I suppose, associated with... Uh, prognosticating groundhogs um, and so the analysis uh, looked at a significant number of these um, uh, predictions and lo and behold they discovered what do you think Brendan they discovered that um, the predictions were literally no better than chance yes it's a I think those in in the US obviously would know this particular um, what do we call tradition? tradition. Uh, and and certainly a lot of people in in Australia see see it on. It's a bit of a last news item, isn't it? On, on the news as a bit of a funny story type thing when it happens every year. So I think a lot of people over here see it, and perhaps in other countries as well. But um, yeah, not not surprising, Mark. Um, what what usually happens to that? Groundhog, they just pop it back in its little hole, do they? Because it's, so. a, it's a huge crowd, isn't it, that um, gathers to have this groundhog hoisted out of the ground. It's <laughs> an event. Yes. Um, so uh, I reckon they should put a microchip in it or a radio track it, Mark, and see what happens. And well, I, I, I did see that um, one of the most famous, well, I don't know how to put it, Brendan, but Punxsutawney <laughs> Phil um, has been making predictions for oh well, Punxsutawney Phil's predictions were correct fifty-two times out of a hundred. Oh, one in two. <laughs> <laughs> but well, the point I'm making is, hundred predictions that would make Punxsutawney uh, Phil a hundred years old. I don't think that's the same groundhog. Yes, yes, that's uh, yes. I'll leave you to chase that up, Mark, and to uh, find out why they called it the same one as well. Yes. National, I was just going to quickly point out National Geographic, where we uh, sourced this article, had an interesting side note that um, Wall Street, um, in Wall Street, returns on the US stock market are 2.78% higher following predictions of an early spring um, than declarations of a long winter. Um, another study recently found. Um, so the major and persistent irrational optimism of US investors uh, does revolve around um, Groundhog Day early spring prognostications. That's an important one to keep in your financial planning calendar, Brendan. Oh, I'll add that to my predictions, Mark. Add that to my predictions. Well, let's jump into our, our, our main topic, isn't it, Mark? And it's a it's a good little topic, this one. Although it could be a big topic if we if we don't um, keep our our comments brief. Um, it's corneal corneal lipidosis in frogs, and for those vets and veterinary assistant nurses who see amphibians, uh, you will see this particular syndrome in pet frogs because it is 
pretty damn common, isn't it, Mark? So, and it once you've seen one, you um, you won't miss the next one because it's so um, pretty damn dramatic in some of them. And I've I've added a photo to if you go to vetgurus.com um, this week, you will see the the t- we put a title picture for each podcast. It's a very very dramatic um, one where virtually both corneas are covered in these lipid deposits. Mark, um, do you see this problem? Indeed we do. We see it quite, quite commonly. And we see um, frogs are are surprisingly commonly kept. You know, people love them and they love having them around. You know, I've got uh, a small colony of green tree frogs um, and magnificent tree frogs. And um, and so, uh, yeah, we do see quite a lot of them. Um, And when we do see them, when they are brought to the vet, um, one of the very common reasons to see them is... Uh, are these marks on their eyes? What are they? What's going on, Brendan? What 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 do they look like? Yes, they look like raised white spots, don't they? Um, or more than spots, um, lesions, um, almost like a, a a covering, a film over the eye. And geez, they look nasty. Some of them, don't they? Um, that, so they tend to be tend to be bilateral in the classic cases. So um, we see them on both corneas mark and um, they typically start at the edges there at the limbus and they progressively move across the cornea there um so you c- it could some of them i suppose the, the milder ones can look a little bit like a a nasty cor- corneal ulcer in a dog or a cat that you know is forming that massive neovascularization and it hasn't you know quite got there and the scar tissues form in there and it's starting to then, you know, settle down the inflammation there. But it is this really white, white um, um, raised, and it can end up being several millimetres or even I've had a couple where it's almost, you know, half a centimetre mark um, raised up um, from the surface of the cornea. These these plaques, I suppose, is one one way of sort of describing it as well. Um, how would you describe them, Mark? Yeah, that's that's a very they're very good analogies. The um, a, a flat, often um, off white cream coloured plaque that in the early stages is uh, you know, and some of them can be embedded in the cornea, the, um, but um, Oftentimes they build up to a size that raises them up so that uh, the profile of the cornea changes. Um, And like you said, they can be a a couple of millimetres, literally masses on the cornea rather than just plaques applied to it. Yes, and the classic sort of history with these are that it's not something that wasn't there yesterday, so it's a progressive um, condition or syndrome in them. So the client will say, oh, my my frog's got a, um, white spots on its eyes or it's got some sort of film across it, its eyes, um, typically both eyes, as we mentioned, and that's been, oh, it's been there for several weeks or it's been there for six months, but it's now to the stage where I think it's having a little bit of trouble seen um and or maybe they report that uh, he or she can't catch its um prey items anymore it's insects um it just cannot manage to see them properly and it keeps missing mark when it's trying to catch its food items so that's sort of a classic history i'd I'd have with the client who would bring them in what about you same deal i do get the occasional client who comes in and this sort of makes sense they're often animals that um you know, you, d- you may not handle 
very regularly um, and you may only spend a little bit of time each evening watching them and that's when they're most active and the rest of the time they're sort of in the day having a little bit of a rest. Um, so you might not have a detailed look at their eye regularly and so there are occasions when people come in and go, hey, oh my goodness, this I've just noticed this today. Yes, or or somebody has acquired one of these frogs and they've had it for you know months or years and they think, oh, I thought that was normal. It came with these white bits on its eye, yeah. So let's jump into, well, we'll sort of do it backwards this week, Mark. I think we'll talk about the cause of it um, before we talk about the treatment and prevention because there's a couple of couple of interesting points here and we mentioned that it's typically bilateral there and, and, and the big indicator there with, with the, that's, and it's mentioned in, in the literature is diet, Mark, isn't it? Um, that uh, if, if the diet's inappropriate and they have a high cholesterol content that um, we end up having um, um, abnormal lipid metabolism, um, which, which is thought to be the cause of this. And that the second, second cause with it is um, that's tied in is that females are much more prone to it. So you do you want to address those two points, Mark? Definitely, Brendan. Um, and I can t talk about, um, like, from personal experience, I know that uh, um, they're voracious feeders and they're always hungry and uh, and they'll keep eating and eating and eating. Um, and in captivity, as they become uh, familiar with their captive environment there and, and you provide them with enough things to climb on, particularly the tree frogs, they get very um, active and so maintaining body weight is very difficult and um, ob obviously ideally a, a wide mix of uh, insects would be their normal prey in the wild um, but it's very easy to whack a couple of uh, um, uh, um, very nutritious pinkies or even with the bigger green tree frogs uh, uh, they'll consume a, an entire uh, adult mouse um, so you, you you're as a keeper you're, you're rushed you've got a whole lot of things to do you want to make sure they get adequate intake you take advantage of the fact they'll take those foods um, and if they do it too often um, then uh, there's no doubt those very very rich uh, uh, vertebrate prey items um, they can end up uh, providing way way too much cholesterol intake um, the the uh, uh, hepatic system of these animals is not geared to deal with it um, high circulating levels probably cause damage in multiple locations but the most visual one is uh, those corneas they just pop out at you Brendan I've left you on Silent. No, I was letting our listeners um, digest your comments there, Mark, uh, as I had myself on mute as usual. Um, so, yeah, that leads into the prevention. But before that, we're going to jump into the treatment, Mark. How do we deal with these? What do you do with these when they come into the clinic? And before you answer, I'll talk about what I do with these. It depends on how severe it is. The obvious, the obvious. Um, First point is we we address um, the diet and the husbandry aspects, and there's another interesting potential cause of it that we'll chat about in the prevention mark um, shortly. But um, so we address those, but the actual physical treatment of those um, it, it, it it's a challenge with them because these are these are such um, um, thick plaques mark on on the cornea there um, that. 
personally, I think a, a fair percentage of them, the only way you're going to try and um, help remove these. Um, long term, you may or may not, and we'll talk about that in prevention, um, be able to address it with the diet in, in that it, 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 I've, I've had limited sort of successful long term with the ones that have have those really chronic cases with change in the diet and, and that has a limited response as far as um, um, reducing those corneal lipidosis um, lesions in my experience anyway. Um, so we, I end up taking them to surgery, mark, scraping, um, a, a, a cutting um, these plaques off, Mark, um, almost doing a... Um, using a, a scalpel blade with a steady hand uh, under um, local anaesthetic, um, or which I have done with some of the really thick ones where I don't even fully anaesthetise the frog, otherwise an anaesthetic, and then trying to remove the plaque down to the, um, down to the corneal, cornea. Um, surf, corneal surface there, Mark, um, and then... Um, putting them on various um, combinations depending on time of the day or the year or my thoughts um, at that time um, of, of oral of eye medication and hoping that they don't recur while we change the husbandry. What's your approach to them? Well, it's interesting um, that, you know, and no surprise, I do essentially the same thing. We see a lot of them that come in very early when they're um, cloudy, um, uh, um, uh, within the cornea, uh, poor, you know, not disrupting the surface hugely. And with those ones, we do try and work with the diet. Like you, I don't see, um, I might stop progression, um, but I very rarely see a significant improvement with dietary manipulation with those guys. But as long as they are still visual, um, I think they have appropriate quality of life. But once they get to those big, thick plaques, um, and uh, a little bit, uh, I sort of think of them along the lines of the, the is it called Corpora nigra in cats, the the um, carrot, the um, carrot, Keratite. keratitic lesions. Um, and they do, some of them don't always form these lamella patterns that we can um, shave off, but the ones that do, um, there is a little bit of... Uh, um, you know, a benefit to be had. The frogs can see better. There is going to be some, uh, whenever you do a, a corneal laminectomy, there's going to be some scarring, but a lot of these animals are much better off for getting those big, uh, chunky lesions out of the way. Yes, and I think you're right in that we need to think about the quality of life of this animal, and that's a really important one because these, these frogs, with the extremely severe bilateral lesions, um, the quality of life may not be great there and the surgical sort of debridement that we're doing there, we're just trying to provide a, a better quality of life with them. We're fooling ourselves, I think, if we're trying to you know, um, cure this condition. Um, and you did touch on the possibility or the likelihood that it's not just the eyes that are affected with this abnormal lipid metabolism. So, you know, we may have pretty drastic things going on underneath in other organs um, like the liver etc with them so we need to bear that in mind as well Mark so yeah um, my treatment is pretty similar and yes you, you, 
a great comment about the ones that are those early stage ones in that we I think we have a, a much greater chance of potentially reversing it all, or at least stopping it progress, I suppose, um, with the changes in husbandry and diet with them. So our treatment, um, yeah, it, it's 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 sort of salvage procedure, isn't it, really, is the way I'd probably put it with the, with the surgeries, just trying to make them more comfortable, trying to remove some of that... Um, um, don't severe. sound negative about that. Most well, of the stuff I do is a salvage procedure. <laughs> yes. And, and then we'd be selecting appropriate eye medications, and I'm, I don't think we should go into detail with that, but it's but, but it's really just, you know, have we got secondary infections there? Have we got a, you know, um, inflammation, uveitis, whatever going on there? And then we, we select an appropriate medication and based I think on that's that. that's yeah. really important to me. I think that, like you said, no, I'm not going to talk about specifics, but there are different stages, whether it's the early stage where no eye, eye medication is likely to make a difference. Once you have those big lesions and some neovascularization, there's obvi obviously an inflammatory process developing. And um, once you do the surgery, uh, there's the, the, the danger of secondary infection. So just be aware that it's not a, a cookbook thing and you have to assess the eye in terms of what else is going on. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's, yeah, I mean, they're easy ones to pick up once you've, once you've seen one, you won't miss it the next time, but they're a frustrating one to deal with because it, our, our chance of curing it is, is not good uh, certainly in my experience um, prevention mark let's let's touch on the two things we wanted to chat about with prevention um, the obvious one is diet there so so what's the classic sort of diet um, that that you would see that is likely to um, encourage this sort of condition with it and and also could you briefly touch on the females being a bit more prone to it how does that you, how does that, that how does that happen well it's the um, like many of our um, female birds and reptiles that uh, quite um, pronounced reproductive cycle and the altered hormones and fat metabolism that go into that um, set them up very badly for a, a lot of these hepatic and uh, fat-related diseases, and that's no different for our frogs that um, uh, um, have that sort of a cycle and, um, and altered cholesterol metabolism at different times of the year will make them... Uh, are more prone to these sorts of problems as they have higher circulating levels of uh, lipids in general and cholesterol specifically. Um, and it's interesting too, Brendan, the, um, that they're, because they're voracious eaters and opportunistic uh, predators, they, um, they in the wild, they'll travel large distances and, uh, and maybe not consume that much food. Um, and, um, and so, you know, there, there have been... Uh, ecological reports that um, wild uh, green tree frogs, our, our um, green tree frogs here in Australia, might only eat um, maybe eight or twelve um, insects over the period of a week. Um, you know, the size of a large cricket, um, and but in captivity, that I, I know of ones that would get fed that every single evening, um, and so they're eating seven or ten times as much. Uh, food as they would in the wild and obviously in captivity even um, we've got quite a large um, uh, six foot by four foot terrarium for our frogs but um, I even think they're not moving around as much as maybe they would in the wild um, and the 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 and the, as I mentioned before the tendency to add vertebrate 
prey to, um, for whatever reason, um, uh, adds the risk overfeeding, inactive inactivity, um, and uh, the introduction of vertebrate prey. But there's some other things too, Brendan. The one of the things I think that's forgotten, and I think we talked about it in our podcast about frog husbandry, is that um, uh, they do a lot of um, basking and in and spend a lot of time in a variety of uh, different thermal environments. And and I remember being one time um, out at Longreach, an outback town in uh, western Queensland, where the ambient temperature was 42 degrees and there were green tree frog metamorphs uh, basking in yes. the sun. Um, yes. And I think um, that's a thing that uh, we don't always allow for in, you know, we think of them as nocturnal animals not exposed to the sun, um, and uh, and for that full, complete um, metabolic uh, allowance to allow them to perform all the functions they would do, I think we've got to start thinking about the mosaics in their enclosure and allowing for those different exposures to ultraviolet light and to different temperatures. Absolutely. So I think that's an extremely important point and um, something that a lot of our listeners will have no idea of. And I certainly didn't have much idea of, well, a lot, most things, but certainly, certainly this. Um, so, yeah, the summary of that is many wild frogs often bask and elevate their temperature, um, their body temperatures above or, or bask at or above 39 degrees Celsius, which is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So, and this is seldom provided in captivity, um, that temperature gradient there to allow them to do that, to bask around that really high 30 degrees um, temperature. And the thoughts are that the peak body temperatures may be important in um, the way the fat metabolism um, works or the way fat is metabolized so this might have a factor to do with why these pet frogs are more prone to it so as with a lot of conditions um, multifactorial probably the problem that we've got going on with these animals um, so you might have the the trilogy of a pet frog that never has a decent uh, high basking spot that it can access it's a female frog and it's fed an inappropriate diet mark and it's odds on that frogs going to be much more prone to developing corneal lipidosis than another frog so yeah i think it's a fascinating fascinating aspect and it's something that i'm sure smart people not as Mark are working on um, doing some studies on the fat metabolism in these amphibians and um, whether it's affected by different temperatures, body temperatures, which I'm sure it, it logically it makes sense. Any final comments, Mark, before we um, head out um, for this week about um, corneal lipidosis in frogs? Just the usual ones. Be on the, it's a common thing. Be on the lookout for it. Um, communicate the the when you do see clients who maybe have frogs and uh, come to you with their other animals, make sure they're aware of those uh, more complicated husbandry requirements. Even on um, relatively uh, up to date uh, forums, discussions about things like this with frog owners don't happen, and so um, veterinarians play a critical role in getting that information out there. We should all be advocates for our amphibian friends. We certainly should be. And go to our website, vetgurus.com, and have a look at that frog with that really severe corneal lipidosis. It's um, 
traumatic is is one way to put it um, and that's understating it we'll talk to you all next week thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.